Hey, thank you for joining us online today. We are so glad that you've joined us. Every week, people uh, from all over the world are watching with us. So we're glad today that you're here with us as we proclaim God's gospel and God's word. Uh, before we get started today, we want to let you know that this sermon is not meant to replace uh, the local and biblical community that you need to be a part of and the local church that you need to be involved in. This uh, sermon is supplemental uh, to you sitting under the care of a local church pastor um, and the care of a local church family. Uh, because Christianity is not about individual persons, it is about a people, it is about the church. So if you live anywhere in around the Middle Tennessee area, we would love for you to join us at one of our local campuses. Um, if you live outside of that area, we'd love to connect you to a good church. Uh, if you'll reach out to us through Facebook, through Twitter, Instagram, if you'll email us, we want to help you find a good, healthy, uh, Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church that you can connect to, that you can plug into, and you can find life and live sin. So we want to help you do that. We pray that hope that this sermon and these messages bless you, and you please reach out to us and let us know how we can help. Uh, so let's get going. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and go to John chapter 7. And we're going to flip the switch a little bit. Matt led us through the end of chapter 6 last week. Did an excellent job of covering a lot of, lot of verses for us. A lot of difficult, weighty, heavy topics. Um, and we're going to close that chapter, kind of turn the page just a little bit to chapter 7 today. And just cover verses 1 through 13. Um, this morning... As I was in, in, and I wake up early and I'm preparing for the sermon and I'm just praying and doing a lot of things, uh, my mind drifts sometimes. So what I did is I clicked on Facebook and I go to Facebook and I go to my profile pic and I look up and I have 1,475 followers, friends, Facebook calls them, 1,475 friends on Facebook. Now, let me say this. First of all, before this morning, I did not know how many friends I had on Facebook. I promise you, I'm not that pastor like, I don't know how many you're dropping off, and again, I don't, I don't ever watch that. 1,475. And let me also say, I do not buy any of those friends, which you know you can do that, right? You can buy and purchase friends and followers to gain. And all. Listen, that's not me. I'm not that guy. 1,475. You might say, wow, RC, you know a lot of people. A lot of people know you. 1,475 but really, what's probably more accurate that, than that, as we live in the age of superficial knowability, it's probably a more accurate statement to say that I know about 1,475 people more than I actually know them. Like, I know a lot of things about 1,475 people, but I don't actually know all of them. They're not really my friends in that kind of way. Like in a moment, I can get on there and scroll through and I can find out a lot of information about you. A lot of those 1,475 people, I can find out a lot of information. I can find out your marital status. I can find out where you went to school. I can find out where you work. I can find out how many children you have. I can find out, I can look at little videos of your kids doing things and funny things and what they like and what they dislike I can find out what you had for lunch the previous day. I can find out if you, what you grilled on the, barbecue, or the barbecue the previous night. I can find out if you had a drink with your steak. I can find out if you're a closet Baptist drinker or not. Uh, I can look and I can find out just tons of information 
about you, um, so much to the point that you could probably bring charges against me for stalking. Like, I can get all that information and know a lot about a lot of you, but yet not really know you, not know what makes you uh, weak, what makes you strong, what your strengths are, what your weaknesses are, what makes you tick. I, I just not know those intimate things about you. And two minutes can gather a lot of information and not actually know you. Uh, I say that because the point of, of this is we take that over to really how we see things about Jesus Christ today as well. He's very popular. He's well-known People know a lot of things about Jesus, a lot of information about Jesus, but yet still do not actually know him in a personal, deep, intimate way. And that's what we're going to see in our text today in verses 1 through 13 is people that know a lot about Jesus but don't know Jesus. Now, knowing a lot of facts about Jesus is good if you're playing like Bible trivia or Bibleopoly. There's a new game there. If you're trying to win some gold pens at church, some trophies and all those things, if that's all you want to do, that's really good to know a lot of facts about Jesus. But if you want to be right with the God of the universe, if you want to have a, a, a satisfaction of life, an abundant life on earth, and an eternal life with God later, you must know more about Jesus. You have to know him personally, deeply, intimately. You have to have a relationship with the God of the universe. You have to know him as God's only son, creator of the universe, substitute for sinners, Lord of my life. We have to know him in that way or we do not know him at all. And in John chapter 7, 1 through 13, we will expose and we'll see three groups of people that are just fitting into those camps. They know a lot of facts about Jesus. As I said, his popularity is trending. People know who Jesus is by this point. He's the most popular man on the face of the earth. They know him. They're acquainted with him. They're walking. They're talking. They see him, he's right in front of their face, and yet they don't truly believe in him. So that's what we're going to see in this passage today. Now, here's what I think John's showing us. I think John is showing us of what unbelief looks like. He is showing us, revealing to us, that it is very possible to know a lot about Jesus and still be cursed with unbelief. He's going to walk through these three groups of people, and then he's going to expose characteristics, marks, or signs of people with unbelief in the hopes that it might expose someone or some of us in this room today who've yet to truly believe in the Jesus in the Bible. People that have grown up in church, have gone to VBS, have gone to camp, have been baptized, have been in small groups, have served the church, have heard the gospel so many times, but yet are still not right with God. Now, I can't, I can't begin to tell you 
um, the, the counseling that I often do or the talking with people in conversations where that's their story. That's so much of their story. They grew up in church. They did all of these things, had a knowledge of Jesus, but yet had never actually had life transformation. So that's what I'm praying for today. That, that, that I believe, apart this church and really churches all over the country, that there are people that are sitting here today that still have unbelief. My hope is, is that God would conquer your unbelief today, that would show you these things might be you, and that you would so be ready and willing to look at yourself rightly in the mirror and say, that's me. That might be me. And that you would confess that, that you would repent of that, and you would be ushered in for the first time in your entire life into true belief in Jesus. That's my hope. That's my prayer. And that's also the purpose of John's gospel. Let us remember in John 20, 30 through 31, he said, that's why I wrote these things. It's so that you would believe in his name. So you might say, well, don't y'all make an appeal every single week for people to come to Jesus and believe in Jesus? Absolutely we do. Absolutely. It is our heart's desire as pastors that you would all know the living God through Jesus Christ. So we make an appeal every week. But it is also the purpose of John's gospel. Now, for you that might be a believer today, and you might be like, okay, this is for unbelievers, and I'm checking out. Listen, this, here's what this might do in you. This might cause you to remember when God conquered your unbelief, when you were resonating with these people and these markers, and you say, God, thank you for conquering my unbelief. And it would cause you to fall deeper into his heavy grace today, remembering what he did. And it also might do this as well. As many of you are close, maybe family members or friends, and you know people that are not truly believers, that these markers might reveal to you that they actually have unbelief and that you would be able to usher them to Jesus Christ through sharing the gospel. So there's implications for both the unbeliever and the believer. Let us read together today. I'm going to ask that you stand for the reading of the word. And we're going to read verses 1 through 13 in chapter 7. Then we're going to pray. It says this, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. And Jesus said to him, said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, He's a good man. 
Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews that no one spoke openly of him. Let us pray. God, we desire and long to know the Jesus that is presented to us in the Scripture. And we ask that today that you would conquer the curse of unbelief that might be present in our church. That we wouldn't think that we are so good that none of that exists in this little vine in Stewart's Creek in Smyrna, Tennessee. Pray that you would bring things that are in the dark, you would bring them to the light, that you would usher people into a freedom and a belief in Jesus Christ today. I pray that you conquer people's love affair with themselves. I pray that we examine ourselves rightly and we would not have a false sense of who we are. And I pray that you would do all of that through the reading of the word. And I pray that this sermon continues through the week and the Holy Spirit would continue to preach it well beyond my words. For it is your power, your word, your spirit that unbelief is conquered, not mine. In Jesus' precious name, amen. All right, let's go ahead and have a seat. And let me, uh, let me set up this scene, okay? Uh, last week when Matt was going through the end of chapter 6, Jesus' popularity is trending, right? He's drawing the crowds, just masses of people. But then Jesus sees this, and they all come there like, hey, be our king, right? And Jesus says, okay, well, let me tell you what it's like and what it's going to cost you to be a part of my kingdom. He tells them what it requires to be in his kingdom, and they all walk away. Jesus, your teaching is too hard. You ask too much. You require too much of us, and they disperse. But this does not disturb Jesus because he was never seeking after them to begin with. He turns his focus to the disciples. So now we have a transition into chapter 7. And let's start up and say this in one, verses 1 through 2 to start. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. And he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Let's pause right there for a minute just quickly. This is not cowardice of Jesus. This is not, well, I'd like to go to Jerusalem, but they'll kill me there, so I'm not going. That's not what this is about. This is Jesus saying, my time has not yet come. My appointment with the cross is later. The Father has set the appointment when it would occur, and it's not now. That's what's happening here in the text. In verse 2, he says, now the Jews feast of booths was at hand. So when you see in Scripture uh, the term after this, all right, this is what this means. This does not mean immediacy. This doesn't mean immediately chapter 6 and boom, he goes right the next day into 7. After this is meaning it could be either an undetermined amount of time has passed or a determined amount of time has passed. So anytime you see that, a lot of transitions and beginning of chapters, you'll see that. Now, in this context, we know that a specific amount of time has passed, six months to be exact. Ver or chapter 6 was ending up around the Feast of Passover, which was around April or May. And now we're told that the Feast of Booths is at hand, which would have occurred September and October. So six months has passed between chapter 6 and chapter 7. You might say, okay, why did John skip all of that time. Why do you skip six months of what's going on? You have to remember the purpose of John's gospel. 
It was not to exhaust the, chronologically, or the chronological life of Jesus. Every little event, that wasn't his purpose. It was written so that we may believe. So he leaves out a lot of details. But the other synoptic gospels reveal to us that during these six months, Jesus continued to pour a lot into his disciples. He went on to feed 4,000 more. The Mount of Transfiguration happened. Jesus' focus during that six months went away from the crowds, and he nailed down his focus to his 12 disciples because he would soon leave, he would soon die, and his plan to impact the world was to pour into 12, not the masses. All right, there's the, a great point of the Great Commission that it's not our job to build the church, to draw the crowds. It's to make disciples, and then we will always get the church. All right, so what's happening is we're told it's the Feast of Booths. All right, in the Jewish tradition, uh, there are three holidays that occur every single year that have theological significance. Uh, and let's walk through those three. The first one is this, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, this is the Feast of Pesach or the Passover Feast. This was obviously celebrating uh, the Passover in Exodus when the, the lamb's blood was passed or put over the doorpost when the angel of death passed through the Passover. It also points to Jesus Christ being the final Passover lamb. This occurred once a year, probably the most important feast of the Jews. The second one, the Feast of Weeks. The Feast of Shavuot or Pentecost is uh, the celebration of when God gave the law at Mount Sinai. The celebration of that, and it also points to the, 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 the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost in Acts. So there's the second one. The third one specifically where we're looking at today is the Feast of Booths, also called the Feast of Sukkot or Feast of Tabernacles. This is probably the most a celebrated feast of, of the Jews. It was celebrating the harvest, but specifically it celebrated and they remembered the time when they spent 40 days uh, or 40 years in the wilderness when they were wandering in the desert awaiting the promised land. But what did they do during that time? They dwelt in tents and booths. They didn't have a home. So now what they do is they celebrate once a year by setting up these tents and these booths, remembering when God provided for them in the 40 years of the wilderness. All right? So let's transition. Here's the scene. We got it set up. Now I want to introduce you to, I want us to, 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 to peer into the window of unbelief, the core principles that we see in these three groups of people. The first group, let's look at them. This is in verse 3. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. And Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come. But your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify it that it works or evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going to this feast. My time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after this, brothers had gone up to the feast. Then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. Now, here's the first group. The first group of people that know a lot about Jesus... Very close to Jesus, but yet 
are still cursed with unbelief. We know that from verse 5. It says, for even his brothers did not believe in him. Now, first, let's look at this. This just said that Jesus had brothers, right? He didn't call them disciples. He calls other parts of the text disciples. These are actually brothers of Jesus. This is big because the Catholic Church teaches that uh, Mary was semper virgo, which is Latin for always virgin, that she would have never consummated the relationship, the marriage between her and Joseph and had any children. That builds up Mary's legend. It feeds into the idolatry and the worship that the Catholic Church has to Mary. The only problem with that is the truth always gets in the way of a good story. Jesus had half-brothers. They, they were born after Jesus Christ. Matthew 13, 55 tells us that he had brothers. James, Joseph, Simon, and Jude. So we know that he has brothers. They grew up with him. They lived with him. They probably bunked with him, right? He gave them his hand-me-downs. They played games. They probably wrestled together. And they probably had a lot of bitterness toward him because he always won. He, he, he never got busted. I mean, he, he never got in trouble. It was always their fault. So there's probably a lot of bitterness because Jesus was sinless, right? So there's a lot of animosity. And then now we see that they actually know him probably better than anybody in the world. They grew up with him, right? And yet still, they don't believe. So why? Why are his brothers still cursed with unbelief. Here's the first marker before you put that up. Listen, I want us to walk through these because these are markers of unbelief. And we need to ask ourselves that these things exist in us. The first one is this. Do we believe in Jesus for self-exaltation or for God-exaltation? Does Jesus exist to exalt me or so that God may be exalted. Now, how do we get to that? You might be saying, okay, how do you get that out of that? Because right now, it looks like his brothers are for him, right? They're excited. Hey, you can do miracles. You're doing amazing things, Jesus. I'll tell you what we need to do. We need to, we need to grow this thing. You need to go tell more people about who you are and your miracles. But underneath that, what we're going to find, their motivation is self-exaltation. What looks like belief is really not belief at all. It is unbelief. So what did, he, what did the brothers say to him? Hey, Jesus, if you really want this campaign to take off, here's what you got to do. you got to get out of this little hick town, and you got to go to Jerusalem and get in front of the power brokers. you got to show off in front of them. you got to dance and do your little tricks, your miracles, your wonder works. you got to do all these things in front of them so then you could gain fame and fortune and power, and influence over the world. That's what they were trying to get Jesus to go do, to dance for the people. you got to get out of Smyrna. you got to go to Nashville if you're going to change anything, is what he's telling them. Now, we aren't told what the motivation of the brothers are in asking Jesus to go. But here's typically the two camps that most theologians and pastors give for the motivation. The first one would be this. They're kind of mocking Jesus. 
because they have unbelief in them and they don't really know if he's truly the Messiah. Hey, once you do some more miracles, man, if you're really doing this, don't you want the public to see what you can do? So they're, they're kind of coaxing Jesus Christ into going to do more things, but they're, really it's their own unbelief. Or the second motivation is they're acting as self-imposed uh, leaders of Jesus' political campaign. If they can get Jesus to be their king, to do these miracles, then they get down to Jerusalem, then everybody's following Jesus. He's king, and then they can sit back and say, that's my bro. That's my brother right there. I grew up with him. I'm on his team. He can do a lot of things for me. I can gain influence and power. People respect me because Jesus is my brother. Either way, regardless of the motivation, the root cause of their unbelief is self-exaltation. It's for their own self. They do not believe that he is, in fact, God. That's why he said, I'm not going to the feast with you. I'm not going the way that you want me to do. You want me to go publicly to gain fame and, and, and the praise of humans, You want human praise to go down there. I don't go like that. I'm not seeking human praise. I don't care about followers. I don't care about friends. I don't need to seek your approval, brothers. I don't dance for you. I seek the approval of my Father and my Father only. And I do not seek human praise. The question that we need to pose there as we uncover one of the markers of unbelief is, do you believe in Jesus because of what he can do for you or believe in Jesus because of who he is? Do you only come to Jesus and, God, would you just give me a job? Would you fix my family? Would you save my kids? Would you, would you give me a house, a car, a job, take the cancer away? Make this MRI come clean. You only come to him when you need things. This is the gospel of of blab it and grab it. Claim it and name it. Just give me Jesus so I can get stuff from him. I would even venture to say that even wanting Jesus only because he gives you heaven is still self-exaltation. Think about that for just a moment. If you only want Jesus... Because he gets you to heaven, that is self-exaltation. It's what he can do for you. And that is a root of unbelief. You want Jesus, not what he can do for you, but because of who he is. Because he's God. And he's the gift of heaven, right? When you get to heaven, you aren't worshiping heaven. You will be worshiping the giver of heaven and Jesus Christ for the rest of eternity. That is why you come to belief in Jesus, not because of what he can do for you, but because of who he is. There's a marker of unbelief. Let's keep going. And the second marker of unbelief is when you live under your own authority. Your own authority, your own will, your own timetable. Jesus' brothers live under their own authority. How do we know that? Look at verse 6. Jesus says, My time has not come, but your time is always here. 
What does he mean by that? Let's, it's kind of weird. I had to study this. I mean, I looked at this like, what does he mean by your time is always here? He's saying your time is always here. You're ready to do whatever you want to do, whenever you want to do it. It's always here because you do what you want to do. You operate under your timetable. So you just go on down to Jerusalem because you are the boss of your own schedule and your own timetable. You do what you want to do. Those who live useless lives always do what they want to do when they want to do it. He says, you go. I don't operate like that. I only operate when God tells me to go. He dictates my schedule. He dictates my timetable, where I go, when I go, not myself. And this is the marker of unbelief. When you have, you are the own, your own authority of your own timetable, your own will, your own schedule. God's will in God's time. This is important. This has a lot of implications because what governs your life, our lives are governed by our schedules, right? Like we're slaves to our schedules. It almost seems that every day. The implication or really the application of this, think about this for a second. If you're a single person and you are longing for a spouse, you want to be married, are you going to operate under your authority, your timetable, and take things into your own hands? Or are you going to trust the authority of God's timetable, His will, His schedule? You want to operate under your own sexual ethics? how you want to do sex your own way, or do you operate under the authority of God, His will, His timetable to enjoy that good gift once you're married? Are you allowing God to be the determiner of your timetable in your job? Or are you jumping at every job you can take because it makes more money? Are you trusting your schedule, your will, your authority to God or you take it in your own hands. When we take it in our own hands, it always ends badly. Always ends badly. Trusting God's timing, God's will, is the safest place you will ever be in your entire life. It's not restricting. It's the safest place to be living in the sovereign authority of God. Unbelievers say this, I want what I want when I want it. The believer, the post-Christian says, I want what God wants when God wants it. And we delight in that. It's not cumbersome. It's not, it's not burdensome to be under the timing and the authority of God. Here's the third pointer, point three. The world doesn't reject you. Third marker of unbelief. The world does not reject you. What does Jesus say in verses 7 and 8? He tells his brothers, Hey, you go on down there to Jerusalem. You won't have a problem. The world doesn't hate you. What does he mean by that? You won't be indicted by them. You won't be indicted by the world. Why? Because you're just like the world. You're friends with the world. You're no threat to them down there. 
You love the same things that it loves. You are their own. They will not have a problem with you at all. You walk like them. You talk like them. You act like them. You seek their approval. You're a slave to the system of the world. You go on down to Jerusalem. You won't have a problem. You'll fit right in with everybody else is what he's saying. But as for me, I can't go down there because they hate me. Why do they hate him? Because he testifies that its world is evil. It seeks its own glory, its own will. So there's a question that we have to ask ourselves. Does the world hate you? That's a strong word. But Jesus clearly tells us that the world hated him, and before it hates you, it's hated him, right? That you should not swim down the stream with the world. You should not act like the world. You should not dress like the world. You should not watch what the world watches. You should not listen to the world watches. Don't behave like the world. Has anyone... Let's say, you, let's say you imagine you put yourself in an environment with unbelievers. Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's at school. Has anyone ever become like uncomfortable with you? Like you walk in and you're like, oh man, everybody's looking at me. This is really weird. They know I'm the Jesus guy or the Jesus girl. And something's just not right. I feel that all the time. I promise you. Like I walk to places and parties and groups of people and I walk in and I'm like, I'm the pastor. And everybody just gets all tight all of a sudden. Right? They'll come up to me and they're like, hey, how are you doing today? Uh, let me tell you what I'm reading this week in the scriptures. And there's Romans, you know. They, I'm like, it's, you, you don't have to do that. It's cool. I, I'm human. Let's just talk. But there just becomes this, this uneasiness because they know I love Jesus and I'm totally okay with it. I don't ever say, wow, I've really got to be like them so they'll like me more and come to Jesus. No, I'm perfectly okay with that. Now, I'm not trying to repulse them, right? I'm not trying to be a jerk for Jesus and say, I don't care. No, I want to win people. I want to be a light, but I never compromise Jesus in order to win the unbeliever. Do people ever do that with you at work, at school? Do you ever make people uncomfortable in a good way or... You just fit right in. And they would never know it's a secret society of Jesus. You just fit like in with everybody else. You listen to the same music, talk like they do, act like they do, go where they go, watch what they watch. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. And what James 4, 4 tells us, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. It is better to incur the world's hatred by testifying against it than to swim down the stream of eternal gnashing of teeth in hell and go down with it. Embrace the uncomfortability. Before the world hated you, it hated Jesus. Suffer the loss of friends if you have to. Incur the persecution and the uncomfortability because one day he's going to come back for you. 
He's going to call you, and you will say it was worth all of it. And you will stand before a holy God, and none of those people will be present with you. They will be nowhere in sight. And you won't care what they ever thought about you. You will only care what the holy God standing in before you thinks about you and how you've honored him in your life. That's a marker that we have to ask ourselves. Now, here's some application in here. As we just unpack James and, 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 um, and, and Jude and Simon and Joseph and these brothers and their unbelief. The first, really the, the thing that we can really um, understand and really agree with is that we could have family members that are far from God today. There's people in your own immediate family, or maybe extended family, maybe it's friends, who do not know Jesus. They are still cursed with unbelief. Jesus knows his own brothers didn't believe in him. Now, I say that because there's great hope for your unbelieving family members because the story goes on. We know that all of his brothers, including his mothers, come to a saving belief in Jesus after his resurrection. They all came to belief. So there's great hope for all of us today if we have believers or unbelievers in our families that have not yet followed Jesus. We know that James and Jude went on to write books of the Bible. James called the, uh, really the steadfast pillar of the church in Galatia. They called him that. Had a couple of nicknames, James the Just, Camel Knees. Why? Because he was constantly on his knees praying to his brother. To his brother. No one prays to their brother, right? Ever prayed to your brother before? No, you would never do that. You'd pummel him, but you wouldn't pray to him. Why are they now gone from mocking, unbelieving, to now praying to their brother? Why are they now willing to die, which they would die for their brother? Because he was God. He is God. That is how you know. Great hope for our unbelieving families. So in that, John's showing us what unbelief looks like, even from a very close and personal relationship. As I said, you could fit into one of those camps. You could be someone who's very familiar with Jesus, very close to Jesus, grew up in church around Jesus, hearing about Jesus. You could want him because of what he can do for you. You could want him for personal gain. And the call to you today is believe in Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible for the first time in your entire life. If that's you and you're like, oh man, I hate it when he does this stuff. I just, man, I wish we'd just get past this so fast. I know that brother because that brother was me, all right? If that's you, hang tight. I'm going to make an appeal to you in just a moment to move. Let's keep going in the story and the next group of people. Number two, the religious leaders, the second group. Verse 11, the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? So here's the religious leaders. 
the unbelieving religious leaders, they're looking for Jesus. Well, they're not looking for Jesus so they can hang out in Jerusalem at the feast with him. Not that they can eat with Jesus. They're looking for him because they want to kill him. Remember back when he healed the paralytic, violated the Sabbath? They're still bringing that up again. We're going to kill you, Jesus. Why? Because he's now a threat to their political power, to their fame, to their system, to their influence, to their money. Jesus is a threat to the Jews. And here is your next marker of unbelief when Jesus is a threat to you. If you see Jesus as a threat to you, this could be a sign of unbelief in you. We know that people reject Jesus all the time because they see him just like this as a threat. A threat to their hopes, their own dreams. Right? We're born with dreams, aren't we? We want to be this. I, want to, I can do this. I want to be whatever I want to be. I want to be famous and fortunate. I want to have kids and a car and a house. I want the American dream. And Jesus comes in and he is a threat to all of that. Let me tell you what Jesus is a threat to. He's a threat to your comfortable life. He is. But he promises abundant and eternal life. The American dream defined as a place or a stage. When you get into your life where you can have everything that you want and do nothing that you don't want to do. Like if we could ever arrive at the American dream where we operated on our own time, we didn't have to work, we could just relax and go on vacation and do everything that we want to do. We could just cruise on into the golden years and soak it and coast it all the way into eternity. That's called the American dream, and it is a lie from the pit of hell. There's nothing good about 60 years of life and fame and fortune and prosperity and retirement and an eternity in misery and hell. There's nothing good about that life at all. Nothing good about that life. So the question that's posed here by John is what is Jesus a threat to you? Is he a threat to you in any way? Is he a threat to your schedule? Like you're cool with Sundays, but man, you start pressing into this small group and you press into my Bible study and you press, man, that's pressing into my schedule. Jesus, you're threatening my freedom. Jesus, I work hard for my money. I work really, really hard. My job is long and laborsome. And you telling me to tithe? You're telling me that I give 10% back to the church? Are you crazy, Jesus? You see Jesus as a threat to your money. Serve? Jesus, you want me to serve? I'm supposed to serve the church? I'm supposed to say two hours at church? Jesus, you're a threat to my schedule. Jesus, you're a threat to me. I would tell you, that if you see Jesus as a threat to anything in your life, that could be exposing unbelief in you today. Jesus is never a threat, ever. Only to your comfortability is he a threat. Last piece, the crowds. Let's look at this group here. This is verse 12 and 13. And there was much muttering about him 
among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. So verse 12 says that there was a crowd of people that were arguing about who Jesus was. Some said he was a good man. Some say that he was leading other people astray. The point here is this. Neither of these groups have a clue of who Jesus is. Everyone has an opinion about Jesus. But what is the commonality between these two groups? And what is the fifth marker of unbelief is this, that they did not speak openly about him because of fear of the Jews. Fifth marker of unbelief, if you fear about speaking openly about Jesus. Sounds familiar. And let me say this before I unpack this. I'm not saying if you have a fear of speaking about Jesus, you're automatically an unbeliever. I'm not saying that. Although I might be saying that. But we could truly be people who love the Lord in a genuine relationship and still struggle with speaking openly about Jesus. But that doesn't make it okay. It doesn't mean it's right. Do you speak openly about Jesus at your job, at your office, at your school, around the cafeteria table, at the ballpark? Or do you say things like, well, I don't think my job, my workplace really speaks highly of people that talk about Jesus. I, I, I better not do that. Now listen, you might have a job that truly does say that and you, you don't press into that. You build relationships outside of work and all. But listen, it might be actually okay for you to talk about Jesus at work. And you might just actually be using that as an excuse to not talk about Jesus because you fear of losing followers and friends and influence and maybe a promotion that you might lose. I would tell you to confess that, to repent of that, to speak openly about Jesus, to defend Jesus, to be bold, to not be ashamed of Jesus before men. Mark 8 36 through 38. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be also ashamed when he comes in the glory of the Father with the holy angels. If you're ashamed of Jesus, he's going to be ashamed of you. If you're ashamed of Jesus, he's going to be ashamed of you. I don't have to unpack that. I have to encourage you, true believers, to not be ashamed of Jesus. And encourage you, if you are not a believer, this might be a marker of your unbelief. Man, as we, the band's going to come back out, could it be that you might be in one of these camps here today? If the gate to the kingdom of heaven is very narrow and not wide, the chances are that, yes, there are people here today that fit into one of these three camps. There are people here that want Jesus for self-exaltation. Maybe you believed in a Jesus that can get you something. Maybe you believe in a Jesus that, uh, that is not the biblical Jesus. Maybe you have a fear 
of letting God ultimately author your schedule, your time, him be your authority. Maybe Jesus is a threat to you. Maybe you think he's a good man. Maybe you find yourself in any of those camps today. I believe John's gospel is to that person that you would today understand the true biblical Jesus, that you wouldn't fall prey to believing in any other version, and that today you would confess and repent and give your life to the one true God today, to Jesus Christ, the substitute for sinners, Lord of all creation. I pray that that happens today, and I'm going to give you a moment to get up and respond, and let me pray for you before we do that. God, we love you. We do not treasure you as we ought. We forgot about you this week. Too many times that we can count, we have not prayed to you as we ought to. We have not studied you as we have ought to. We fall woefully short of meeting your righteousness. But God, thank you for Jesus, the true Jesus of the Bible, who forgives us, who restores us, who conquers our unbelief, and gives us abundant and eternal life. Father, we long for the people here today that are still marred by unbelief. Their eyes are closed. Their ears are deaf to you. I pray you open those ears, that you open those eyes and conquer and overcome unbelief today. Move who you will move. Father, we trust you to do all of those things. We don't manufacture responses. We depend upon you to create and draw us. Do that in this place today. In Jesus' precious name, amen.